This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. Live and local from the 1037 The Game Studios in Upper Lafayette. This is Acadiana's number one sports station, 1037 The Game. Streaming live at 1037thegame.com and on the free 1037 The Game mobile app. It's Saturday. Take a walk on the wild side. Get your Saturday started with an inside look under the dome with the world famous CD. Do you know who I am? I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. On 103.7, the game. And good afternoon, everybody. Welcome, everyone, to Under the Dome with CD. We are coming to you live once again at Katie Number one sports station, 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. Hopefully, you're having a great one. Let me talk to you on a brand new time, same old me. And, of course, you're listening to the man himself, the world-famous CD, and hashtag as expected. We are coming to you live, as always, from the palatial, the delightful, dare I say, absolutely opulent, 1037 The Game Studios. Baby, we're looking good. And we appreciate you listening in, however you're doing so. Be it through the FM dial, the Tower of Power, too sweet to be sour, and let's get funky like a monkey on this Saturday morning, or should I say Saturday afternoon. I think it's definitely a great debate of whether or not 11 o'clock is the afternoon. I think it's a great debate that will never end. It's close enough, in my opinion. But I got to say, I'm looking forward to today because, honestly, I'm here from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. We bumped my show back an hour. I'm more than okay with it. In fact, I can get a little extra sleep, be able to spend a little more time prepping out the show, get in here, and be able to give you all the best takes and the best possible content. And that's what we're going to do here. And I'm absolutely loving the fact that this is a glorious day. Why am I saying it's a glorious day? Because here's what's going on today. I used to do What's on Tap when the show first started, but I decided to kind of take it away, especially once COVID-19 hit, and there was nothing on tap. But here's what's going on today in the world today. Five NBA games, five NHL games. You've got 12 MLB games. We'll see how many more are going to happen or not, but, you know, this different conversation for a different day. You had PGA and LPGA tour events. Chelsea versus Arsenal, the FA Cup going to be going on, two MLS games, a Partridge and a Pear Tree, three WNBA games, two lacrosse games, the PLL, the Premier League, the Premier Lacrosse League, there we go, UFC Fight Night in Vegas, three boxing title fights, and 32 training camps continuing also, again, Partridge and a Pear Tree, hopefully you're enjoying the fact you got sports back this weekend, and it's a wonderful time to be back on the air and after kind of a weird last couple weeks, we're going to be more consistent, bringing you absolutely nothing but straight fuego over the next two hours. And i got to say, I'm looking forward to starting things off like we always do. If you haven't heard the show before, you might not know this, but we start every Saturday off with the Saturday Sports Sermon.
I usually just have one take, and I fit it all in one nice little box. And this is going to be very different because I usually do it in one, but it's a take in three acts. So let's take you through it one by one. And the nucleus of this sermon all started on Tuesday night when Joe Kelly threw at the head of Alex Bregman on a 3-0 pitch. Bruh, there is no reason why someone should be hurling a 90-plus mile-an-hour fastball towards another person's dome. The more damning thing of all this came from the Dodgers TV crew who said, quote-unquote, it slipped. There's no way that a ball slipped out of a man's hand, especially a little nerd like Joe Kelly, throwing about 90-plus miles an hour. I don't care about that preseason video that came out where he broke his window but through practice. This dude... There had to be at least some modicum of intent for that to happen. I'm surprised Bregman didn't just charge the mound then and there and cause a whole lot of other issues. Throwing at the head is a big reason to go in my book. There's no reason why that we're sitting here in 2020 and we're not seeing somebody go after somebody for throwing at the head regardless of what they did or what their team did. And then we see later in the inning he does the same thing. It was more about what he did after striking out Carlos Correa that got everybody talking and really what caused all this. A grown-ass man stuck his tongue out on national television and acted like he was hot you-know-what. That causes a whole fracas, and the first socially distanced benches-clearing argument happens. Not a fight, not a brawl, but an argument, a discussion, a discourse, if you will, that's what happened, and somewhere along the line, Joe Kelly stopped being Joe Kelly and became Jake Berman for the Little Giants, if you remember that movie from back in the day. In fact, it was the second this punk did something that you always see when you were a kid on the playground sticking the tongue out like he's a damn five-year-old. He should have gotten his lights knocked out. If not for COVID, I would have been shocked if nobody wound up going up to him and open up a can of whoop you-know-what on him. It was absolutely deplorable what we saw from Joe Kelly throwing at Bregman's head. It's not even the fact he's a former LSU Tiger or he's a Houston Astro. It's a human being you're throwing at a guy's head. It could very well be ruining his career. You don't do that. That's one of the golden rules. Even though, you know, we call, talk about the unwritten rules all the time. How can you not be doing that? And then the second act of this play, if you will, the Saturday sports sermon is the fact that, you know, the Astros there was some punishment for this. It may not have 100% fit the crime, but it was 100% deserved. Dusty Baker, a couple other players got fined. I'm okay with that. And then you see Joe Kelly get suspended for eight games. Obviously, he appealed it. And he's probably going to get reduced to maybe five. But there had to be a statement to be made, no matter who it was. And I feel like, you know, you can't justify throwing at a player's head because you want retribution because they throw the World Series from it. Shut up with that nonsense about taking a World Series away from you. Just shut up about that. This is not a, like, throwing at a guy's head is a whole different conversation. If it hit Bregman, it could have ended his career, possibly his life. That's, that's beyond the pale for me. And I'm sure the Twitter army of anti-Astros fans would still applaud the reprehensible actions of this clown if it did hit him. And those clowns should feel absolutely awful about themselves for the way they want to act about all this. I cannot stand the army of anti-Astros fans 
because of the fact that they complain and cry and moan and do all the other things that I cannot stand because the Astros weren't punished enough. They weren't punished enough. The players should have been suspended. Here's the thing. How can you, and basically my thought process is, and I've been wondering about this since day one, since the announcement that you had the GM and the manager both suspended for a year. They were fired later, but, you know, that was kind of inevitable. My question to everybody is, did you just want the Astros to be wiped off the face of the earth? All players banned from baseball? We act like the Houston Astros 2017 World Series title never happened? Is that what you would want? Is that Would that be justifiable punishment enough for sign stealing? Which everybody does. Which every person in the MLB, every team in the MLB has done. Don't act like it doesn't happen. Don't act like that. It is absolutely asinine that we're sitting here in 2020 and we're still complaining about the fact that they're sign stealing. They're sign stealing. And the Astros were the one that got caught. I cannot stand the fact that we're still upset. That the people out there are still upset about the fact that the Houston Astros stole a World Series in their mind. Honestly, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head whether or not they stealing signs actually helped them in the long run. It's not like they hit every single ball and wound up winning games 55 nothing. If they won 55 nothing, then I'd say there's a lot more stuff suspect. But the fact that you can you can't say that you suspend your GM and your manager for a whole year for doing something that I guess everybody's been doing for years. But it's the fact that you use technology, they they're the ones that are going to wind up getting the hang of high routine. I cannot say enough. People who are like this, who want to kind of raise Joe Kelly up now, this stupid nerd out there, you know, little goofy, lanky nerd. I, I could say a lot more things about him, but he is a punk. That's my bottom line here. Joe Kelly is a punk who deserved to get his tail handed to him, but he walked off like a little baby after sticking his tongue out to, as a grown-ass man. He did that on national television. Joe Kelly deserved to get suspended, Maybe not, you know, how harsh eight games, but the Astros, they need to just straight up say, you know what, we've had enough, and we're going to embrace the heel and give the teams they play so much gripe and so much grief after months and months of kind of wondering when that first shoe was going to fall. It happened five games into the freaking season. The Los Angeles Dodgers showed that they're not over it. Joe Kelly wasn't even on the team. It's like Mean Girls. He doesn't even go here. I'm sitting here saying Joe Kelly is a punk, and he deserves to get his tail handed to him whenever that moment does happen. Because if he throws at another Astro, I guarantee you, even in COVID times, somebody's going to bust his behind. Joe Kelly better hope the season gets shut down because he definitely is going to wind up getting his sooner rather than later at least in my mind. If you disagree, if you want to talk about anything else involved in the world of sports, guess what? The game hotline, it is wide open. 337-706-0111. 337-706-0111. If you want to agree with the Joe Kelly is a punk take or anything else, we got you. Just hit us up. 337-706-0111. A couple guests in the program today. Steve Lass and Athlon Sports will join us at the bottom of the hour. We'll talk about college football and how it's looking right now, obviously, with the ACC, the Pac-12. 
the SEC, what's going to happen with the Sun Belt Conference, these power, these group of five programs, what's going to happen there? We'll talk to him about that and a whole lot more at 10.30, 11.30. We'll have on Chris Gordy of Sports Talk 790, the host of the Extra Innings Show on Sports Talk 790 for the Houston Astros. We'll talk to him about what's causing all this involving those Houston Astros, whether or not he thinks Joe Kelly's a punk, and what's been going on with Justin Verlander and the crew over there? Because they definitely had a, an interesting week. It all started with Justin Verlander's injury, and then we move over to Tuesday, and that's completely forgotten. What's going on with him? What he thought about Christian Javier's debut, first start as an Astro, and that was a really solid start. If not for you know the hitting, just could not sync up. But we'll talk to him about that and a whole lot more. But coming up next, I know we've listened to. Unprompted with Louis Prejean. That just got off the air. And he talked probably enough Pels to fill up like an entire calendar year. But I don't mind diving in to the New Orleans Pelicans and get a little conspiracy theory in for you as we continue the show. We're going to talk some Pels next. You're listening to Under the Dome with CD on 103.7 The Game and 1037thegame.com. Again, the game hotline wide open. 337-706-0111. And, hey, why don't you tweet at me, at Clint Doming. Show me how you're listening in. CD may be considered world famous, but he still goes out and eats a shrimp po' boy just like the rest of us. Just don't talk to him while he's eating. Man, I'm starving. Now back to Under the Dome on 1037 The Game, Acadiana's Sports Station. Welcome back to Under the Dome with CD on Acadiana Sports Station 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. Hopefully, you're having a good one so far. 337-706-011 was how to get in on the conversation to talk to me. And trust me, we can talk about a lot of different things right about now. But we'll kind of steer the conversation for a little bit towards those New Orleans Pelicans and where they stand after a very tough loss to the Utah Jazz. You wound up hearing that during the two-minute drill about the fact that they lost to the Jazz last second. Rim-rattling shot by Brandon Ingram wound up costing them. But, you know, the stats bared out. They looked pretty good for the most part. They out-rebounded, shot better from the field. The free-throw shooting was a little suspect, a little questionable. But, honestly, I absolutely loved the performance from the Pelicans. It was gutty. It was gritty. And they came very close to kind of securing the bag and setting up a really solid chance of getting a win. But that didn't happen. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that Zion Williamson was not there in the final moments of that game. Everybody's been wondering why he was limited in minutes, a lot like what he was just a few months ago, because people are kind of not remembering about the fact this was almost a rerun of what happened just a few months ago, whenever he debuted in the league against the Los Angeles Lakers in primetime television, 
the first game of the Zion Williamson era, when Zion was actually on the court, that was on national television. He was on immense restriction, mind you, just coming back from injury. But they've been wondering, everybody's been wondering why. And yesterday, David Griffin actually had a press conference, and here's the whole reason why Zion was so limited. What happened when we got here was our performance team had a very clear plan laid out for every member of the team. And every member of the team got to go through that plan, and that plan included scrimmage minutes that many of the team got to play. Many of our players were held to 15 minutes or 12 minutes or whatever, not because there's a fixed minute number, but because there was a fixed approach to how they were going to play the game. So everybody got to do that during the course of the scrimmages. Zion didn't get that opportunity. So I appreciate the fact that everybody wants him to play 40 minutes tomorrow night. I I can promise you he's not going to. Um, No mistakes were made yesterday relative to how this was handled other than by me by not coming forward and just expressing this in the, the clearest way possible. This, this isn't complicated. It's not complicated. And I think that's absolutely the right way they should handle this thing because everybody wants to cry and complain about the fact that, you know, Zion Williamson did not get a chance to really live up to his expectations and wasn't able to play like we wanted him to play. Here's the thing. He has every chance to, prove us wrong, but I'd much rather him be healthy in the long run rather than in the short term. Now, I think that definitely is a big question we're going to have is why he was in the starting five to begin with. They say he's at his best to start the quarter, and it's justifiably so. I think you'd say that a lot about a, diff- about a lot of different people, but I would have kept him off the court if you were just going to put him in to start the quarter but not to finish the quarter, especially in crunch time when you have a chance to seal the victory. If you have Zion Williamson in there, there's a chance they wind up coming away with a win, and they're 1-0, and we're not talking about potentially going 0-2, maybe even 0-3, because tonight they're playing the Los Angeles Clippers, and the Clippers are a damn good team. They're going to cause the Pelicans a lot of strife later today when they tip off at 5 o'clock. And I just feel like, to a certain extent, Adam Silver is just behind the scenes saying to Gentry and crew, if you don't put Zion Williamson out there for all eight games, he's going to make life very difficult for them. He's going to wind up pulling all the strings to make sure the Pelicans do what they need to do to make sure Zion is front and center. Is hey, you know, why put a guy out there who isn't ready to quite blast off in your starting five? It's because the NBA absolutely needs Zion in there and in the bubble. That's why they put the Pelicans in there in the first place. Because nobody was going to wind up bothering to tune in if it was just jump straight to the playoffs like the NHL is doing in the bubble. By the way, they're starting today. I'm absolutely excited about the fact we got hockey back in our lives. And i got to say, this is where my biggest complaint is about what's going on with the New Orleans Pelicans and the way the NBA is. The NBA wants to continue pumping Zion Williamson up and almost probably want to try and run this dog as hard as they can to make sure Zion Williamson runs out of New Orleans as soon as possible and just continue the cycle of, hey, you know, you're going to be with the Pelicans for a few years, but then, oh, hey, you go ahead and join one of these super teams with LeBron James, Anthony Davis, or whoever is going to be your next big star because Zion Williamson is absolutely a generational talent. The guy's so big but also agile. I think he has a chance to be one of those next greats in the NBA like LeBron James was. LeBron James not getting any younger Trust me, if you saw his hairline, you know, or maybe the back of his head during the opening night game on the West, with the Lakers Clippers, 
you saw that his hairline is just an absolute mess and needs to kind of, honestly, sometimes you just got to realize, I'm going to go ahead and shave this bad boy off and kind of cut my losses at one point. But I got to say, Zion Williamson is just basically the NBA wanting to run this dog hard as much as possible. Again, I give all the credit to the world for the front office handling this the right way. They want what's best for Zion in the future, and maybe it is just best for them to cut their losses and not be in the playoffs just to get swept by the Lakers. And when it pertains to Alvin Gentry, I think he'll stick around. I'm changing my tune from back a few months ago, back in December, I believe I said it outright, that I think, you know, Alvin Gentry should have been fired because he did not live up to expectations. But I think there's a number of reasons why. It's the fact that so much changed last season to this season. So much has changed. And this is not even counting COVID, but I'll get to that in a second. But they had so many changes. They basically scrapped their front office, rebuilt that thing. You got rid of Anthony Davis. You added in a whole bunch of new guys in Lonzo Ball, B.I., and Josh Hart. And you also threw in Zion Williamson, your number one overall pick. A lot of these other young guys you got as part of that AD trade that everybody had been clamoring for for months. So I can tell you right now, I think Alvin Gentry stays. Because of all the changes from last season as well as COVID-19, he'll get a chance to prove himself next season, whenever that may be, however that may be. Because obviously there can, there's rumors considering using the bubble in next season for the NFL, for the NBA, and you wonder how that's going to affect them going forward. But again, if he fails in that season, he's gone, in my opinion. It's just as hardening to see a team that showed so much promise in these glorified practice games, undefeated and exhibition games, and everybody was so hyped up about them. Now we're sitting here wondering what the hell is going on. What happened to that team? When it matters the most, they've decided to mail it in, just decided to mail things in. And heading into this whole bubble thing, I was certain this would be a great learning experience for Zion Williamson and this young Pelicans nucleus, guys like Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Guys like Lonzo Ball, B.I., and Josh Hart, who haven't, ha- who haven't been in a postseason situation. They haven't been in this like down-the-stretch run because of the fact they've largely had nothing to really work with with the Lakers. He, they played with LeBron James last year, but they couldn't get anything done because LeBron was too busy doing all that load management. So they had, a, they had a great opportunity to learn what it's like to play in a game that actually matters and to see the entire 2020 season go up and smoke like this, it's disheartening. But now I'm just wondering if this was all an exercise in futility, all because Adam Silver wanted Zion Williamson in his bubble so bad, he pretty much forced the hand and said, hey, you guys, go ahead, get in the bubble. We don't care. You can go 0-8, get a lottery pick. But guess what? You're going in that bubble, pal. You're going to go ahead and go in that bubble and move on. And that's absolutely just disheartening to hear, the fact that we're going to wind up seeing this young Pelicans nucleus just sit here and you wonder why I'm so frustrated with everything going on with the NBA. I'm not necessarily going to give up on the NBA because I I feel like right here, right now, it's going to be the Los Angeles Lakers winning the whole thing. LeBron James gets another championship on his shelf and everybody continues to talk about him being the greatest of all time, even after the last dance proved that Michael Jordan is without a doubt the greatest basketball player to ever put lace up a pair of sneakers. I just got to say that, and it's absolutely 
just disappointing as all get out. And tonight the Pels will play the play the Clippers. That feels like a loss. And then add the fact potentially in the third game against the Grizzlies, Zion's gonna be limited as well. Can we just get to next year, please? Can we just get to next season? And maybe we'll get a little bit more positive down the road. We're going to go ahead and take a quick timeout. When we come back, we got a whole lot more to get to. We'll talk with Steve Lassen, Athlon Sports, about the SEC. Made a lot of changes to their schedule on Thursday. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more next. Even in these trying times, the world-famous CD follows the simple words of Matthew McConaughey. You just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. So let's kick back and enjoy Under the Dome on 103.7 The Game. It'd be a lot cooler if you did. Welcome back under the dome with CD on Acadia and a sports station 1037 the game at 1037thegame.com coming to you live from the beautiful 1037 the game studios hopefully you have a great one so far and you're getting your Saturday afternoon kick started off right it's a brand new hour 11 a.m. till 1 p.m. usually this is the first hour of the show we usually book this about 10:30 but it's a little different right about now and I'm absolutely loving it Steve Lassen, Athlon Sports joins us on the game hotline. Steve, what's going on, Migo? Hey, Clint. It's great to talk to you. It's been a newsworthy past couple weeks since we talked, and, uh, you know, hoping, fingers crossed, we keep continuing to build that optimism uh, for the 2020 season. So a lot of interesting things going on in the college football world right now. A lot of interesting things, and you brought in the last couple weeks. I mean, it's been like the last 48 hours or so, especially when you talk about the SEC. Getting things started off, we'll, we'll kind of go there. And then we'll move around, see what see what else is going on in the world of college football. We'll start there. The SEC announced they're going conference only, and they're going to be starting on September 26th. Their SEC title game is going to be on December 19th. I think the biggest surprise is only one open date, according to the statement that Greg Sankey and crew put out. Are you surprised the fact they're going with a like basically a split, where basically they're going to wind up having like in the middle of the year you got to buy a week and then you play the second half because playing. 10 straight conference games in the SEC, that's not exactly a cakewalk. Absolutely. I mean, whoever wins the SEC this year is definitely going to earn it because 10 SEC games is going to be very difficult to navigate. I mean, we think about Alabama's schedule already with Georgia on it. Maybe the new schedule could have Florida on it. So, uh, you know, we'll see how the new schedules shake out. But the SEC champion and this year is just going to be brutal. It's going to be great for fans to have 10 SEC games. But, man, those teams at the end of the year, they are going to be uh, pretty beat up. But, you know, I think there's two ways in the schedule you could look at this. The first is, you know, it's better to start earlier and build in more space. Or the second one is you start when the SEC is September 26th, try to build in two bye weeks, hope by the start of school, everyone coming back to class, the NFL starting, you learn enough to where you can navigate uh, potential tests and, and being able to quarantine players if you need to. So, 
You know, I, I was a little surprised that September 26 was chosen. I actually think starting earlier is better. But if that means we get 10 SEC games and we get an SEC championship, and if it all works out, hey, I'm all for it. So a little surprised, but at the end of the day, um, I hope it all works out for the SEC. It's definitely probably one of the more interesting ones because of the fact that you would be starting it a little bit later, September 26th, and you're seeing what they were doing, you know, and it makes you wonder was like was that done largely just almost in big retaliation of what the ACC did? Largely, kind of the ACC almost had a like a false start of sorts and put the SEC kind of in a pretzel because I was just thinking about it, you know, you have all those like Week 12 Georgia, Georgia Tech, Clemson, South Carolina. I'm sure South Carolina and Georgia Tech are more than looking forward to the fact they don't have to take it on a Matic L to end the year. But they're looking. But it's just the fact that you have those traditional games; those are no longer part of the conversation. Yeah, it really is. You know, we're going. That's one of the things about this year is you know nothing is going to be normal about this college football season. We're going to miss the rivalry games, but not only that. You know, Power Five versus Group of Five matchups, and it's not just ones that had you know maybe upset potential. It's ones that meant a lot. Uh, for money for teams. I mean, you think about a program like Kent State, who was supposed to bring in $5 million from its three games against Power 5 teams. That's a huge hit to the budget, but there are so many scheduling quirks that we're going to see this year. I mean, the ACC, as you said, is starting earlier. The SEC and Pac-12 is starting later. Um, we're going to have a very kind of staggered and unusual start to the year, but you know, I think every conference is kind of out for itself at this point. They're just trying to get through the season to be able to crown a conference champion. And with all the uncertainty, the potential they may have to stop and reschedule games, uh, to me, conference championships is the best thing and the best path to decide this year. Hopefully we get a playoff. hope it all works out. But I think crowning a conference champion should be the priority this year. We'll miss those games. But the SEC, ACC, Big Ten, Pac-12, Big 12, uh, those conference championships will matter a lot. All right, you're leading a horse to water here. This is kind of where I was wanting to go next. You, we, you brought up the college football playoff, Steve, and I think that's really the big question with several conferences going only, conference only. We haven't seen the Big 12 make an announcement yet. I'm sure we'll hear something soon. But how does that change how the college football playoff committee looks at certain conferences? Because we always look, because of the fact you've got you've only got four teams to choose from, Steve. So you're going to have, obviously, the SEC more likely than not. Maybe it's just my bias. But you've also got the ACC, the Big 12, the Big 10, and the Pac-12. How does that change their viewpoints in terms of how they're going to rank these teams if we were to, if we were to have a college football playoff, which obviously they're going to be hoping for and they're going to be planning for and they're going to be having those debates about which teams get in. How does that change the entire mindset of this committee? It's a great question. You know, I, I think the honest answer is they will. Pro- it'll probably be more subjective than we're used to seeing. You know, basically, they can, you know, the committee with 13 um, people voting on it, they're just going to have to go kind of more with um, subjective, very gut feeling. You know, they're going to watch these games during the year, and they're going to say, sure, even though Georgia may have played 11 games, Oregon may have played nine, um, who do you feel is the better team? Not having the non-conference games I think matters too because it allows you a chance to see where each conference kind of stacks up, especially with 
you know, Oregon, Ohio State this year, USC, Alabama, uh, those were good barometer games to kind of gauge where these teams are. So, you know, I think it's going to be much more subjective than we're used to seeing. I also think, you know, I think we'll probably see four conference champions, um, barring some kind of undefeated, you know, showdown in the SEC championship game, which seems unlikely considering how the schedules could break. It seems like we're going to get four conference champions in there, and and I think you know, kind of as I said, it'll be very subjective. The data this year is just going to be different, but at the same time, you know, I, I like to to argue and pick apart the the committee's rankings. But if we're in a position at the end of the year where we're worried about whether Oregon has played ten games and Georgia has eleven, man, I will take it because that means we get a college football playoff. And talk right now with Steve Lass and Athlon Sports. The next question that I have for you is obviously. Does this whole situation, conference only, kind of make a stronger case for expanding the playoff field to eight just for this year? Let's just go one year this year only because of obviously what all is going on. What ha- do you think this? There's a case to make it eight for this year only. You know, I think you can. You know, I think the problem is college football moves at like a, a pace of a glacier floating in the ocean. You, you know, ain't lying. I mean, it just it, there's. Change never happens fast for college football. So for them to be able to react in real time and make changes, probably not going to happen. But you make a good argument for it because, you know, the schedules are going to be very conference-based. We're not going to have those non-conference games. And also, from the money aspect of this, let's just say a bunch of games during the year are canceled. They're not going to get that 50-something, 60-something games they need for tele, you know, filling up the television schedule. So in theory, if you expand the playoffs, maybe you get a little bit more revenue for each league. So you know, I think there is an argument to be made this year. I just don't think college football is going to adapt fast enough to make that happen. They probably should, but they won't. It's a great point, Steve. I think that's just the biggest thing. The NCAA will fail to adapt. I mean, look, look at what's going on right now. Like the college football world, like all of college sports – should be working as one unified group, but now we—I mean, the, the Big Ten started all this, and then we see the ACC, the the SEC. I had to kind of make an announcement. Big Twelve just sitting there like we're going to still play our games. I mean, we see that. Like, I just feel like we're starting to re, like realize a lot more on a nationwide scale. I mean, obviously, people like you and me, we know that there should be a czar of college football. I think there just should just be a czar of college sports to make sure that everybody's making one unified decision instead of basically, in, in pro wrestling terms, going into business for themselves. Yeah, that, that's a great way to put it. Everyone, Every conference is really out for itself at this point. You know, the Big Ten, you know, the, we heard all along this offseason, conference commissioners were talking, they're working together, they're going to have an announcement at some point, and we saw the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC and SEC. Everybody's just making their own decisions, and some of that is due to, you know, different areas are kind of in different situations. And I think it's really hard to put together 130 teams, different conference commissioners with different agendas, all working together, which, you know, certainly the NCAA doesn't really play a role in FBS football for the college football playoff. But you do kind of wonder if Mark Emmert at least could have tried to play negotiator in this and tried to help it out. Instead, they've been invisible. And I think it does sort of show 
that some sort of conference commissioner or kind of overseeing all the conferences, at least to act as some kind of mediator in all this, would have helped. And, you know, it also just goes to the bigger picture issues of college football, name, image, and likeness, some of these other issues. When you keep moving the the ball down the road, eventually it catches up to you, and you see not a lot of foresight, not a lot of long-term thinking. Someone who's in charge long-term could probably foresee some of these issues and bring them to light so that the NCAA isn't blindsided like they are now. So, yes, I, I really think this shows a lack of leadership across the spectrum for college football. Talk right now with Steve Lassen, Athlon Sports on Under the Dome with CD on 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. And what does this mean for the Group of Five programs? Because I, I was seeing something that a lot of the program, a lot of the conferences, are saying, "Hey, you know, we'll just try and you can play all your eight conference games." For instance, I believe the CUSA already said this: they're going to play those eight games, and then you can schedule as many non-conference games as you want to fill that twelve teams, twelve game schedule. That makes you wonder, like right here, right now, obviously that's their plan, but what do you think this means for the future of the group of five programs? Because you got to think that the SEC, for instance, isn't going to want to schedule any those body bag games anymore if they only have to play like 10, 12 games. Yeah, you know, I think group of five teams and programs are really going to be hurting this year. And, you know, it's just... Yeah, I really worry about some of these programs. I mean, you've seen programs like Akron make big-time cuts to their school. Um, you know, you've seen other programs make cuts on the athletic side, coaches taking furloughs. This is going to be felt for a long time. And, you know, you start thinking about this year, for some of these teams, you know, is it worth the cost of rescheduling some non-conference games if you have to pay for the testing and any additional health standards? Is it better to just play the eight conference games and decide the conference champion. Um, There's going to have to be some real decisions made over the next couple weeks. And, you know, too, I mean, some of these conferences, you know, you think about with Power 5 teams, if four out of the five Power 5 conferences are not scheduling uh, non-conference games, there may not be a lot of matchups out there for them. So I I will throw out my theory on the group of five. If I'm the Sun Belt, if I'm the MAC, I kind of go to ESPN and all these leagues and say, hey, we want to play all of our games on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Fridays. What do you want to do to help us out? Because any additional TV revenue this year could be a huge plus for conferences and teams not being able to bring in a lot of fans. So I will keep pushing that idea because if we have college football every week, it's only better for us as fans, and certainly I think it could help these programs with exposure. That would be absolutely huge, Steve. i got about 30 seconds left in this segment. So we're going to talk about Levi Lewis because he's gotten a lot of love. He's on three different preseason watch lists for the best quarterback in all of college football. What do you think of Levi Lewis heading into his senior year? Because his junior year, he looked outstanding. I think the sky's the limit for the kid from Scotlandville. I agree with you. You know, we've got him second team uh, all Sun Belt this season. I think you look at his, I mean, first of all, his numbers last year were just fantastic. And, and I think his his emergence, in addition to the running game for, for the Cajuns, is one of the reasons why I like this team to win the Sun Belt this year. So I think you, you, we've got him second team. If he can have a little bit better year, he can push Zach Thomas for first team all Sun Belt. I think Levi Lewis is really a rising star. And like I said, one of the biggest reasons why I like the Cajuns to win the Sun Belt this year. Steve, thank you so much for coming on, my man. We'll talk to you down the road. 
Hey, Clint, sounds great. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. All right, that was Steve Lassen, Athlon Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Athlon Steven. And, hey, you can follow me on Twitter as well, at Clint Domingue, C-L-I-N-T-D-O-M-I-N-G-U-E. All right, this is Under the Dome with CD. We're going to take a quick timeout, and when we come back, we'll look at what's going on involving one of my favorite things, and that is the Legends of the Fall bracket. I'll give you details about the Elite Eight in just a little bit. Back after this on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. From the preps to the pros and everywhere in between. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Let's get back under the dome with the world-famous CD on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game. It's the elite, the the elite eight with our Acadiana's Legends of the Fall bracket presented by Stan's Auto Center on the intersection of Johnson and Doucette. Voting for the elite eight ends at midnight on Sunday. So don't forget, you need to go vote. Get your votes in. Of course, you can vote now and vote tomorrow. You can vote every day for this thing. We're down to the elite eight, and we're going to look at it. Each of those individual matchups, real quick, give you my quick takes on these four matchups. They are gonna be these are gonna be some damn good matches matchups to say the least. We'll start off with the one versus two seed in the Falk region. Kevin Falk taking on Josh Reed, determine who gets out of region number one. And I think there's a big reason why Falk is the number one overall seed. It's because he's probably the best high school player from Acadiana all time outside of Dr. Tommy Casanova. I wasn't around back then, so I'm going solely off of reputation. I think Falk should win this matchup fairly handily. It's not no offense to Josh Reed. I think I can say, without question, I think he comes out of this and makes it to the Final Four and could very well be in the finals, depending on how the other elite matchup goes. Because I think whenever we talk about that next one, it's a battle of Acadiana High stars, and it's definitely interesting when you look at the way things are shaking out. Jacob Contrera... Number nine, taking on number three, Ali Broussard. Jacob Contreras been that, like, basically underdog story, being able to knock out the number one seed in Jake DeLome and also knocking out some really notable names. He's heading, he's in the Elite Eight against Philo teammate Ali Broussard. It's the Acadian High fan base torn between two icons in the history of their program. Ali Cat gets a lot more love for me because he wound up having all those records. I mean, Dylan Monette took those records away from him. But I think we can say right here, right now, he gets a lot more love from me. I can understand why we're seeing a lot more run from Jacob Cotrera in this tournament. He was such an integral part to the record Rams becoming like a big power in Class 5A. Because remember, back in the day, Acadia and Ohio wasn't necessarily the big dog like they are now. After years, they finally were able to kind of get things done, and the Veer offense is an absolute monster, and they're able to be a lot more consistent. They just won a state title last year. I think Jacob Contrera was a key cog in that. He was a name I heard all the time when I was in high school, especially my senior year when I worked out in the Scott area. I was able to hear his name quite a bit. Then we got another matchup. Number one, Johnny Hector taking on number three, Dominic Davis, one of the Barry's finest in Johnny Hector against a great Brobridge product. I think in terms of legacy, Hector has the edge in this contest, and the name itself makes you think. And Hector's a hell of a talent, and I think he will win this one. But I'll be interested to see how the Pont Bro contingency votes on this over the weekend. 
And then also number one seed, the final matchup in the Elite Eight, early Doucette, Corey Raymond. It's the Mr. Everything for St. Martinville against one of the architects of DBU. I'll give early Doucette the edge. He was absolutely amazing back in the day for St. Martinville. He just did a ton of different things. And I think Raymond's name is a lot more associated now with what he does at LSU versus what he did as a high school player. Corey Raymond, a great player over at Nish, but I, I got to give the edge over to early Doucette. He's going to be taking this one, and it'll be largely chalk outside of that. I think Acadiana High's Jacob Contrera is going to be that one making it to the Final Four that you just don't see coming. He's definitely got a lot of love from people. And, again, I love the I love this because it's absolutely justified. So, for me, the Final Four is going to be Kevin Falk, Jacob, excuse me, Alec Broussard, Johnny Hector, early Doucette. Now, I think Contrera wins this one. But it's just personally the way I'm voting on this one. But it makes for an interesting Final Four. Now, how do you see it? Why don't you go ahead and vote on 1037thegame.com and click on Acadiana's Legends of the Fall bracket. Voting ends on Sunday, so make sure to get your shots up. It ends at midnight. So make sure you get your shots up, and we'll reveal the Final Four on Monday's programming. And special thanks as well to Stan's Auto Center on the corner of Johnson and Doucet for sponsoring the Acadian Legends of the Fall bracket. We're going to go ahead and take a quick timeout. Hour number one in the books. Hour two, we'll get back in just a little bit, and we'll talk about what's causing all this involving the MLB at large, and we'll be taking a swing at those proverbial pinatas. That is Rob Manfred and Tony Clark next. You're listening to Acadiana's number one sports station, 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. We're taking you in to your afternoon right this should be played at high volume preferably in a residential area live and local from the 1037 the game studios in upper lafayette this is acadiana's number one sports station 1037 the game streaming live at 1037 thegamecom and on the free 1037 the game mobile app it's saturday time to take a walk on the wild side get your saturday started with an inside look under the dome with the world famous cd do you know who i am i don't know how to put this but i'm kind of a big deal on 1037 the game and good afternoon everybody welcome back under the dome with cd hour number two we are officially at noon, at high noon. Hopefully you're having a good one so far, partner. Let me give you a happy Saturday afternoon to you. Hopefully you're having a good one so far. I know I sure almost felt like saying, give me a yeehaw. I don't want to give me a hell yeah. Because we got a pretty good afternoon getting you ready for the, I'd say the weekend already getting kind of jump started. We saw the NHL open up earlier and they already had like a huge hockey fight, blood on the floor. But on the ice, I should say, absolutely nuts. And then this kind of came out earlier today involving the SEC. I'm going to kind of pull this report up from the Southeastern Conference. There was a report that came out through the Washington Post. It basically said there was a lot of concern about what's going on with the entire situation involving the SEC, involving COVID-19 and returning to action. 
And the SEC put out this statement just a little while ago. In fact, during the Steve Lassen segment, didn't wasn't able to get to it. I was already planning on talking about the Acadia and his legend of the fall bracket, which you can check out 1037thegame.com right now. And here's the quote from the SEC from their statement. Quote, the SEC hosts video conferences with the SEC Football Student Athlete Leadership Council to engage in candid conversation, share information, and develop greater understanding of issues important to our student athletes. The calls are intended to be confidential to encourage honest conversation. We are proud to provide our student athletes with the forum and appreciate their willingness to engage with us on a regular basis. And it goes on to say, the call was held on Wednesday with the participation of our medical advisors to provide insight and respond to student athletes' questions resulting from the unique environment produced by COVID-19. The information we gather while engaging with student athletes helps inform conference decisions and provides an opportunity to share information with our campus leaders to further enhance our continuing support of the student athlete experience. End quote. And the student athletes also expressed appreciation for the honest dialogue, indicated the discussion was beneficial, and requested a similar video conference in the future. As we all work to adapt to the realities of COVID-19, we will continue to support the health of student athletes. And that's their statement. That was handled really well. Considering the fact that the Washington Post put out largely, it felt like almost a hit piece on the SEC and their way they're handling this entire situation. And, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff going on. It was a safety meeting that was going on. And, you know, worried football players are were pushed back. It's not good enough, as they put it in this report from the Washington Post that said it included a dozen SEC football players, members of the Medical Advisory Board, and SEC officials, including Greg Sankey. And it was designed as a confidential free exchange. And there was actually audio that was taken from this. Apparently, I don't know how they got this, but, you know, it's the Washington Post. What are you going to do? And I hate the fact that they have a pop-up that basically doesn't allow me to see much more of this. But if you're subscribed to the Washington Post, why don't you check it out on your own time? There's a lot of different questions about what's going on with the NCAA and how they're going to handle this whole situation. This is, in fact, stuff is coming out left and right. Just all this. Milwaukee Brewers star Lorenzo Cain is not going to be participating in the rest of the 2020 season. He's opting out for the rest of the year. That's a big blow for the Milwaukee Brewers. But outside of that, though, it's been relatively like quiet so far. Now I'm going to get to what I'm wanting to start our two off with. Because I've got a lot of complaints about one person in particular, and also Tony Clark. Why not throw him in this one as well? And let's just destroy this piñata that is Rob Manfred and Tony Clark. It's been eight days since the MLB season started. Eight whole days. If you want to get technical, probably nine. Because it technically started on Thursday with that Yankees-Nationals debacle that finished, didn't finish in my mind. You also had what I think is probably the most ridiculous part of all this is the fact that within five days of the season starting, multiple Marlins players tested positive for COVID-19. And everybody's been crying out for the MLB just to shut it down, go full John Taffer from Bar Rescue and shut this bad boy down because of the COVID outbreak. Now, yes, It'd be great to see the league handle this a lot better. That's the first thing that they need to do is handle this a lot better. Because, you think about it, it's largely been contained within the Marlins in Miami, like most of them. I was seeing a release that came out, I believe this was today, 
talking about the COVID results. And basically they had like 25, 26 players that tested positive or somewhere along those lines. And like 20 of those tests all came from one place. You guess it, Miami. Because they all went out and went having themselves a good time in Magic City, allegedly. That's where we're at. And then the Cardinals also have five that have te- more than five people involved with the Cardinals organization that have tested positive for COVID that came out this morning. Like, that was a wild part of, about today because I usually probably wake up around like 7, 30, 8 o'clock heading into Under the Dome when you used to air at 10. Today was kind of a different day. felt like Christmas Day waking up at like 7 a.m. Unprecedented for me. But, you know, I absolutely enjoyed it because I was able to kind of catch up on some headlines and write some things down and also spend some time reading the stuff about Drew Brees, who we'll talk about in a little bit. But it kind of brings the question, who's to blame in all of this when it comes to what the season that may be done by the end of this weekend? Maybe tomorrow we'll find out that the that Rob Manfred just shuts this whole thing down because there were reports that came out last night that Rob Manfred has basically said, unless you all get your act together, I'm shutting this whole thing down, and we're all we're all not going to have a championship. We're all just going to go ahead and shut it down and not, not come back until 2021. It's a strong possibility. This was first, first reported by ESPN and also confirmed by the New York Post. And, you know, 20% of the teams didn't play Friday due to COVID-19 reasons. You have the Phillies, the Marlins, the Blue Jays, and the Nationals. And it is absolutely ridiculous that the fact that that they are having to consider shutting this thing down. Again, 29 positives, and the Marlins were responsible for blackjack. 21, 18 of the 20 players that tested positive all were Miami Marlins. The Phillies, they they don't have any players that tested positive. I think they have like a staff member or somewhere along those lines that tested positive, but still, it is completely unacceptable that this is happening. And I think the blame on this solely falls largely on one person. That's Rob Manfred. He's going to have no choice in my mind to shut the doors down if we're going to be... We're seeing a couple outbreaks now, and these could boil over into God knows what. There should have been something in there, maybe a clause, to just say, hey, if you test, if you have a team that tests positive for COVID and you have multiple players, now the real question is the number. What's the magic number to shut a team down? Is it one or is it like the amount that we saw the Marlins have from Jump Street? I think it has to be the one with the Marlins from Jump Street. You've got to have at least four or five different cats. Like if you have four or five guys that are tested positive, shut the whole team down. Tell them to go home. Like their season's over. Eliminate them from the process altogether. The, especially if you're the Miami Marlins. Just, I think that's what Derek Jeter wants. Is just to go home. They want to. They shut down activities for them until. I believe like, Sunday, so tomorrow, then they'll be back in action on Monday. And I think the, I think the Cardinals game, or somewhere along those lines, they actually got can't they actually got postponed like a day. And that's actually got postponed. And then oh yeah, never mind. I'm uh, so here's what happened: you have the four to six additional COVID cases from Cardinals organizations force another postponement of the Milwaukee Brewers and the St. Lewis Cardinals. That was going to be going on later today, but now we're just waiting to see what's going to happen with the Houston Astros and all the stuff that they've got going on. 
because obviously the Astros they playing the Angels tonight. Who knows what kind of what the results are going to say about uh, the Astros players? Because again, they were in a situation where you know they had to, they were in close quarters. Yes, they were socially distant, but some of them didn't wear masks. Case in point, Carlos Correa when he was jaw jacking with Joe Kelly was not wearing a mask. So there's a lot of different questions concerning that. But I think the thing falls on Rob Manfred. He did not set up well enough to get the season going and get it to a point where it finished. And I, I mentioned this to Ben, and you know, obviously I'm going to use Florida and Arizona as a prime example of how you could probably work out a quote-unquote bubble. You already kind of do that with spring training. You already do it with spring training. You run it with the bubble. Basically, here's what you do. And I'm just going to throw out all these things, and hopefully the MLB is listening to this program. I doubt it. But Rob Manfred, here's what you do. Here's exactly what you do to start off the the game plan going forward. If you were to actually start the season off right, you would have done a 60-game season, started on 4th of July weekend, but you have Arizona and Florida both be used as your bubble. And you make sure that those guys go to the park to the hotel and they don't leave they're done as soon as that game's over they leave you sanitize whatever you need to sanitize but guess what you're going home you're going to the hotel and you're not leaving the hotel to the next game that's how you need to handle this thing you need to make sure people know what's going on and i think i think the mlb has a chance to redeem itself but it's gonna take something drastic change and the big thing they're going to have to do, the biggest thing they're going to have to do is say, hey, we're going to set up shop and we're going to go ahead and make sure that you all know this is a big lesson to learn from with what happened with the Miami Marlins. Don't go out partying. Don't go on a night in a town after a win or what have you because you could be running risk of catching COVID. It's a lot like what LSU did a few weeks ago. Because remember, LSU quarantined like 30-some-odd players. Now, how many actually had it? I don't know. I don't have the info. They're not going to give out the info because, I mean, HIPAA laws, but you're going to wind up giving the information. But, oh, hey, 30 players were all quarantined. Guess what? The players that probably tested positive were out and about doing it, and that was kind of largely mentioned. Tigerland. Again, Tigerland is not a place to be at any time of year, be it COVID or not. But... That was a big reason why, you know, you had that big COVID-19 outbreak because of Tigerland existing and the players going out and partying. Now, I think now they've learned their lesson and saying, hey, we're not going to go out and party anymore. We're going to focus on being able to be ready for football season this fall, and hopefully these guys can recover and be back 100% healthy. And they can can go for the Cajuns. I don't know what happened with those having several players test positive, but I'm sure that's going to be a conversation that Napier and crew have had and just told them, hey, like, don't go out, don't do this, don't do that, and make sure you can handle your business however you can. But I'm looking forward to talking to you for the next 45 minutes or so. This is Under the Dome with CD. Coming up in this hour, we got Chris Gordy, Sports Talk 790, host of the Astros 10th Inning Show. We'll talk to him about what's going on with those Astros. 
what to look forward to in this series because they, they take the first game of the series in extra innings, which was nuts. But also, we'll talk to them about a whole lot more involving those Houston Astros and maybe a little Texans as well. You're listening to Under the Dome with CD. Coming up next, we'll talk a little bit about Drew Brees, who had a conference call today. He'd be interested to hear what he had to say. Back after this on 103.7 The Game. Most sports talk radio shows go up to 10 on the amp, but Under the Dome with CD goes one higher. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Now back to the show that brings the heat on Acadiana Sports Station, 1037 The Game. Welcome back to Under the Dome with CD on Acadiana Sports Station, 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. Coming to you live from the 1037 The Game studios. And it's amazing the fact that we've had not one, not two, but three shows on a Saturday morning on Acadiana's number one sports station. It's been a while since we've had this many people in the studio on a Saturday. But obviously we've been able to take care of the right precautions and more importantly, make sure that we make sure this place is absolutely spotless and disinfected and ready to go before Monday. Because obviously with a lot of people in and out of the studio, you never know what they, what they could have or what they couldn't have. Making sure this place is absolutely spotless. 337-706-0111 is the number to call if you want to get in on anything. And I think this might be a segment where you want to get in on the conversation about what Drew Brees said earlier today is Drew Brees basically came right out the gates and he had an opening statement he wanted to say before getting questions about, you know, if he stopped licking his fingers, and he has for four months, and maybe wonder about whether or not, you know, the KFC's finger licking good slogan should be retired because obviously in COVID times, we're not, they tell us not to touch our face, but that's beyond the point. So Drew Brees talked with the media this morning. This actually happened like about 7.30. Again, benefits of waking up early on a Saturday, I was able to catch this. So Drew Brees talked about this. He had an opening statement. I'm a, I broke it up in different pieces because I want to listen and react here. Drew Brees started off saying he's always been compelled to serve ever since he came to New Orleans. I think you'll be interested to hear his, ta- hear his comments here. You know, I've, I've always been someone who has felt compelled to serve. Um, it's the main reason why Brittany and I came to New Orleans. Um, you know, that was a time when I really wasn't sure if I would ever play football again. But I knew that I had a chance to be a part of something much greater than myself. And the last 15 years in New Orleans have been some of the proudest, most rewarding moments of our lives. And we've, we've tried to dedicate ourselves to creating a lasting legacy of hope, of love and progress. It's a great comment from Drew Brees to start off mentioning the fact he always wants to serve, and I absolutely can understand that. You know, he definitely is serving his community on a regular basis. He's probably one of the nicest guys. I've always mentioned him as one of my favorite Saints players of all time, and I think maybe he was the favorite of a lot of people. Now, his comments that he made on June the 3rd, I believe it was, he mentions it here, but Drew Brees actually talked about some of the comments that he made in that interview with, I believe it was Yahoo Finance. It wasn't Yahoo Sports. It was Yahoo Finance. And everybody kind of just 
took over the headlines, and next thing you know, Drew Brees is in the middle of a you know firestorm. You know, going back to my comment on June third, to think for a second that New Orleans or the state of Louisiana or the black community would think that I was not standing with them for social justice, that completely broke my heart. It was it was crushing. Never ever would I feel that way. Now I, I recognize that I missed an opportunity that day. I had an opportunity to talk about and emphasize the social injustices that exist for our black community and our need as a country to support them and to advocate for systemic change. And my lack of awareness in that moment hurt a lot of people. And I think it's been definitely noticed. We've seen him make the right changes in that direction to basically say, hey, you know, I understand what I said was wrong. And what I said may ruffle the wrong feathers. And, you know, he'll actually kind of go in a little more detail about what he's going to do going forward. Because this is more of a contrition, a lot like what he did back when the comments first happened. His statement and the Instagram video, all, all the stuff that he's done. This is another step in that direction. And, you know, he's talking about saying that he will continue to stand for the anthem. But you'll you'll hear his reason, reason why, and it makes a lot of sense. I'll always stand for the flag because of what it means to me and to honor all those who have sacrificed, who have served and died for our country and all those who have struggled to move this country forward. That was his statement concerning whether or not he's going to stand. And I think that here's the thing. I'll just say this and y'all can make your your own opinions on this is the fact that Drew Brees saying he will continue to stand for the anthem. That was something he said in that Yahoo Sports interview, that Yahoo Finance interview back on June 3rd. If he said, I'm going to play it again, because I feel like this is what Drew Brees should have said in full detail here is what Drew Brees should have said in that interview. And then I think you wouldn't have as much of a problem. I'll always stand for the flag because of what it means to me and to honor all those who have sacrificed, who have served, and died for our country, and all those who have struggled to move this country forward. And then this is the next thing he should have said right after that and probably would have avoided all the firestorm and everybody jumping up at arms, then he wouldn't have to basically go on an apology tour. I acknowledge and respect anyone who chooses to kneel or any other form of peaceful protest to bring attention to the social injustices and systemic racism that so many have endured and continue to endure in our country. I will always support and advocate for the black and brown communities in the fight for social justice, always. And that's the way it should have been handled from Jump Street. Now, mind you, again, you know, he was kind of backed into the corner having to make an immediate answer on that interview with Yahoo Finance that kind of started all this. And that, again, what he said about continuing to stand and what he said, and that was kind of where he was in an interview with Yahoo Finance, and the fact that he re- will respect those who do, that would have probably avoided a lot a lot less controversy, let's say that, because I think there's going to be people out there that maybe, maybe you're in that number that are going to be very much kind of upset or what have you. I'm not going to tell you how I think or feel about this. This is just me 
playing the sound from Drew Brees' conference call earlier today with the media, and he continues to talk about the fact that he was he's been compelled to serve. I'll pull this clip up real quick because I wound up dropping in the wrong thing. This is what happens when you produce your own show. Things kind of happen. But he mentioned the fact that he has a responsibility to serve, and you hear that right here. I'm the same person now that I've always been. I'm someone who cares deeply for people in my community, New Orleans, the state of Louisiana, people everywhere. I'm someone who will always address the inequities and disparities that exist. I'm someone who has great empathy for those who are hurting, struggling, or victims of injustice. And I'm someone who feels a great sense of responsibility to serve and to lead and to bring true equality to everyone. That was basically Drew Brees' opening statement in its entirety, broken up into different pieces because I felt like we needed to listen and react to a little bit of it. But Drew Brees' statements make a lot of sense. I think he handled this the right way in terms of issuing this public statement. Hopefully this is the last one. Because I think that's the biggest thing for me is he's been apologizing, apologizing, apologizing since June 3rd. Basically, it's been almost two months of nonstop apologizing for the statements. And, you know, he has the right to do that. And I think he, I think the fact that they had this, like, meeting, this team meeting that happened helped him realize, hey, maybe I did make a lapse in judgment the way I said things, and I'm going to handle myself differently going forward. That was huge for Drew Brees going forward and seeing what he can do with his team. Some other notes that are actually related to football. And honestly, sometimes I'm glad the fact that we're actually talking football. But that was about the only ounce of like political, all that stuff I'm going to get into on this show ever. But Drew Brees also mentioned the fact that he came back for his team and he came back to chase a Super Bowl. I'm going to enjoy every second of this journey and just value every moment and just stay in the moment, end quote. That is a great line, and I, I love the fact that Drew Brees is ready to chase that Super Bowl again. And he, he obviously also was talking about the fact, is this the last ride for him? Not necessarily sure, according to this conference call, but I also mentioned the fact he's getting along with Jameis Winston. He's an absolute joy to be around in his mind and basically says you know, he's exchanged texts throughout the offseason and he provided input to Brees about what he saw from Tampa. And it's great to hear that these guys are getting along well because you know, like there was probably at least somewhat like a bit of like kind of weirdness. The fact that they were conference rivals and now they're teammates, it's a little strange. But this one's a really strange one. I, I think this is the one everybody's been laughing about. I love the fact somebody asked this question. I, I'm almost certain it was Amy Just, but I can't verify that because I was not, I haven't listened to the whole call yet. I've just been reading quotes and I made sure to get that opening statement before we got on air. And Drew Brees said, believe it or not, I have not licked my fingers in four months. If I can break myself of the licking my fingers habit, I think anybody can break themselves of any habit because that was out of control. I love the fact that he's absolutely aware of the fact that him licking his fingers was out of control. And then the Saints, then Cam Jordan comes out of nowhere. This is one more thing about the Saints. Cam Jordan out there looking like Randy Watson. If you if you see Cam Jordan's Twitter account, he is out there with the soul glow. Ama- the hair is amazing, first of all. Because, I mean, Cam Jordan's the best. One of my favorite players just because he's entertaining as all get out. He's out there saying he the levels to this activator game, as he put in the caption, 
on Twitter, and then the Saints on Twitter. Let's have a little fun with it. I want you to put your hands together. Welcome to the stage. A big round of applause for Jackson Heights own Mr. Randy Watson. The fact that he made a Coming to America reference is outstanding. <laughs> and apparently it was Amy. I want to get a text from a friend of mine. She actually just dropped this. I'm like, that's awesome. Amy Just is absolutely fantastic. I loved having her on back when she was covering LSU basketball, but obviously now she's doing some Saint stuff for Noah.com and The Advocate. We're going to go ahead and take a quick timeout, come back, talk with Chris Gordy, Sports Talk 790 in Houston. We'll talk about what's going on with the Houston Astros, what he thought about Christian Javier's debut, and a whole lot more. You're listening to Under the Dome with CD on Acadiana's number one sports station, 103.7 The Game and 103.7 thegamecom Under the Dome with CD is far from your ordinary sports talk show. I am the voice of the voiceless. What other show has more pop culture references than an episode of Family Guy? I just don't want to be involved in any of that mess. Now back to the famous CD on 103.7 The Game, Acadiana's sports station. Welcome back to Under the Dome with CD right here on Acadia in a sports station, 1037 The Game, 1037thegame.com. And we're going to go to that Houston, Texas, where they are balling out. They had one hell of a game last night against the Los Angeles Angels. The offense looks to be back on point after a less than ideal series against those Los Angeles Dodgers. And we'll definitely talk about that and a whole lot more here. With our guest, he is on Sports Talk 790. Also hosts the 10th inning show on Sports Talk 790 right after the Houston Astros wrap up. That is Chris Gordy. Chris, what is going on, man? Hey, what's going on, man? It's uh, yeah, it, it was nice to have sports officially back last night. Uh, for those of us here in Houston, flipping the channel from the Rockets to the Astros, Astros back and forth to the Rockets. Uh, it was nice to have two you know sporting events from your city that you, you know, can't watch at the same time. You're having to flip back and forth. And that's a problem that we haven't had in about, oh, you know, five, six months or something. <laughs> exactly. It's been a while since we've had this kind of stuff going on. And, you know, I, I'm just blown away. It's like we saw we have the – you mentioned the Rockets and the Astros. And the Astros, like, let's just say this much. The Astros have had probably the busiest, like, first week of the season as anybody's ever had because you have within – you have. Verlander put together a solid performance, and by Sunday, you find out that he could very well be out for the year from Chandler Rome. JV's just dismissing that report altogether. Like, do you think Justin Verlander is going to be out for the year, or is this going to be just a situation they monitor and basically you could come back like around the postseason? Yeah, this it's a real interesting situation. And first off, I know Chandler, and you know, he wouldn't put that out there if he didn't have it coming from not one, but two pretty reliable sources. I think the issue is Verlander probably does have a tear in that elbow. Uh, they're going to, you know, basically they're resting him for two weeks. Uh, they're going to reevaluate him, quote unquote. But I think ultimately what they're going to find out is, look, there's a tear there. You can pitch through it. Uh, it'll be painful, but you'll just be delaying the inevitable that you're going to need the surgery. Now, Standard recovery time for Tommy John surgery is about 15 months. So basically what you're looking at is Verlander's going to be out all of next season. 
you know, if, if this is in, you know, does require Tommy John, which a lot of people think it will. But Lance McCullers Jr. Uh, from the Astros had this same issue two years ago. He rested for a little bit, doped up on some pain meds, and came back and pitched a couple innings of relief down the stretch of that season for the Astros. He pitched through the pain and then ultimately had Tommy John surgery at the end. So, you know, maybe that's something Verlander's considering is, Maybe I can come back. I don't know if I'll be a starter. Maybe I can pitch some innings out of the bullpen and at least give this team something down the stretch and then eventually have the surgery. But either way, it's just it's a it's a total blow to lose your ace for a team like the Astros. It is a total blow to see that. And, you know, I think one of the things that I'm taking away from this is, yes, you lost Verlander, but at the same time, you realize something that you have, like a potential, like, guy that we didn't know a whole heck of a lot about in Christian Javier because he wound up having, like, a – Hell of a performance and a losing effort the other night. Yeah, and he was the minor league pitcher of the year last year, so he had a real good performance. You know, the bottom line is they need Zach Ranky who's pitching tonight. He's got to step up now and be the ace. Now he's the guy who's been the ace of many staffs in the past, so it won't be an unfamiliar role for him. But he's got to step up. You know, McCullers who pitched last night was not very good. He was good in his first start, not good yesterday. But here's a crazy stat that I just saw this morning: the Astros have so many un- unknown rookies that are all pitching right now. Astros rookies have accounted for more than half the innings pitched by the team this season, over 33 and two-thirds innings pitched. That nine-man group of their rookies have a 1-3-3 ERA. Wow. That's really impressive. And, again, like, like I said, I mean, I've covered the Astros for many years. They're bringing guys out of the bullpen that I've never even heard of. I'm like, who is this guy? I don't even know who this is. So uh, kudos to Jeff Luneau and the former – you know, the former scouting staff with the Astros who did such a good job of drafting and stacking the system with talent. They're getting really good use out of a lot of arms that nobody really expected. And I like that. Talking about Chris Gordy, Sports Talk 790, and just looking at how that Astros team, like the first few games of the year, it's like they were absolutely like destroying the baseball, and then they played the Dodgers, and it was just like nothing. The lights, the lights weren't on at all. It's a case of lights on, nobody's home. The lights just weren't on at all. Yeah, it's real. I wonder if maybe the Dodgers got their head a little bit because here's the crazy part. Going in that series, we knew it was going to be tough facing a starting pitcher, Walker Bueller, who was an all-star last year, went 14-4. and four. Uh, Really, really, really good pitcher. Well, the Astros chase him, I think, in the third or the fourth inning. He's out of the game. And then the second game, Dustin May, you know, kind of like a carrot top out there with the big red hair. He, uh, he goes out there and the Astros chase him in the fourth. So the two big name starters for the, for the, uh, the Dodgers, not named Clayton Kershaw, pitched in that series and the Astros chased them early. It was the bullpen that shut the Astros down. They couldn't do anything against the Dodgers bullpen on either night. And I know, you know, Joe Kelly is the one that caught all the attention, but yeah, to me, the story was the Astros just couldn't hit the Dodgers bullpen. And then sure enough, last night they go out to LA to play the Angels. And we're going to rack up 12 hits and nine runs. The offense returns again. So I almost wonder, you know, maybe it was the thing of playing the Dodgers. The Dodgers are all upset over this whole, you know, World Series vengeance from four years ago, uh, wanting to get, you know, revenge back on that. I almost wonder if maybe they were in their heads a little bit facing the Dodgers. Exactly. I think they definitely could have been a little bit in their heads facing the Dodgers and add the fact that, you know, after everything that happened on Sunday, the way they – they lost to the Mariners, and then they bounced back on Monday. But I'm sure a lot of stuff that a lot of the external stuff kind of caused them to struggle a little bit as well. But I think Tuesday's the game where I think was was that inevitable, COVID or not? 
that like the fifth or sixth game, something like this was going to happen. Yeah, I think the issue was that both the games against the Dodgers were close and competitive, and I think neither team wanted to really do anything, you know, uh, to to put the team behind the eight ball. Now, in that game, you're you're specifying the Dodgers had a uh, you know had a, I think it was a five to two lead, and Joe Kelly, the pitcher, I think had already gotten the first two outs, and he and he falls behind on Bregman three zero. So he says, "All right, you know what? This is a good spot. I'm probably going to walk him anyway. It's two outs." I'm just going to throw out his head. So I think that if if he doesn't fall behind the Bregman there, I don't think he throws at Bregman. And honestly, I think we get through the two games with the Dodgers with no retaliation at all. I think just the cards fell in a scenario where Joe Kelly took it upon himself to say, I'm going to throw at Bregman. Bregman. Now, here's the, the funny part about this is Joe Kelly was a member of the Red Sox in, 20, in 2017 and 2018. Yeah. In fact, he was a member of the Red Sox team in 2018. That was accused of cheating themselves with their own side stealing scandal with Alex Cora at the helm. So that's kind of the ironic part about this. This, this guy's trying to get vengeance for his new team, the Dodgers, who wasn't on the team with the Dodgers in 2017, and then beat the Dodgers in 2018 on a team that was also cheating. So go figure. There's a lot of hypocrites out there. Oh, exactly. I mean, let's let's just put all the cards on the table. And you know, both of us. I'm an Astros fan through and through. In fact, we air the Astros right here. On 103.7, the game. Can't wait for tonight, game two of the series against the Angels, which we'll get into in a little bit. But to me, it's like every team in the MLB, in one way or another, is stealing signs. It's just the fact that the Astros got caught and were using technology that made everybody get extra butthurt. Yeah, I honestly think it was the trash can thing that really, like, if they if they have a more clever way to relay the signs, you know, like the like the Red Sox and Yankees, there were reports they were using Apple watches that would buzz. Uh, you know, when certain uh, pitches were coming, if they did something like that, I think it wouldn't be as big of a deal. But because it was so blatant, banging on a trash can, and you can go back and watch those games and see and hear it. I think that's what made this ten times worse because people can blatantly see the che- the cheating as opposed to you know if it was just buzzing on an Apple watch. Well, there's no way to tell you know, what pitches, when and where that they're getting the signal. So I, I think that's what really made it 10 times worse in the baseball world. Exactly. I, it's just absolutely disappointing to kind of see all these other teams cry and complain about the fact that the Astros were cheating, but they've all done it. But going back to Joe Kelly, I mentioned at the, be- at the beginning of the show, just came right out and said it. Is Joe Kelly a punk? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you uh, you use a more uh, tame word than I've been well, using. Well, I, I but, can't say what I really want uh, to say on the air. <laughs> yeah, um, it, yeah. I mean, he's a total just. I mean, and then what he does, making the pouty face as he leaves the field, like no grown man in his thirties. Joe Kelly is, I think, thirty-two years old. No grown man should ever be doing that. I mean, that's something that you know, nine-year-olds do with their friends is make a pouty face because they didn't get their way or something. And the ironic part about that was. It's two pitches before he strikes out Correa. Correa lines one down the left field line, literally about a foot foul that would have scored. I mean, if they were two men on, they would have been rounding the bases, and suddenly it would have been a five to four game with two outs. The Dodgers would have pulled Joe Kelly. They would, you know, they would have been changing pitchers. But it, you know, that's just baseball. How it falls sometimes. The ball falls just a foot foul, and then two pitches later he strikes out Correa, and this is nice swing. So, it, look, it is what it is, but. I just think it's so fun. Look, I would have had way more respect if Kenley Jansen came out and threw at the Astros because he was actually a member of the 2017 Dodgers. Yeah. So it would have made sense. 
But Joe Kelly fighting somebody else's fight is just so ridiculous in my mind. It's it's like Mean Girls. He doesn't even go here when it comes right down right. to it. Talking <laughs> now, Chris Gordy, Sports Talk 790. And obviously we've had a week of Astros baseball, and we've been hearing the radio calls here. I want to get your thoughts on how the presentation has been for the Astros radio broadcast and also the way it's been televised nationally with the cardboard cutouts. And in some cases, you got the virtual fans. What have you thought about that? Well, I, I've been to the ballpark a couple times uh, the past week during the pregame shows and stuff, and it's weird. I mean, it, there's no other way to explain it. It feels like it's just a practice, you know, other than you got two professional teams out there. The, the, the celebrating is, you know, at a bare minimum. And there was a, a, a situation in the game the other night where the Astros, uh, you know, come back to strike out with, you know, strike out the whoever it was with the bases loaded. And they celebrate, and it's just, you know, the, the pitcher just pumps his fist, and that's it. And it's just, you know, it's one of those moments where if there's fans in the stands, everybody's on their feet screaming, but it's just so anticlimactic with no fans being there. Um, you know, the cardboard cutouts is fine. It makes it look, at least, you know, you're not seeing just a ton of empty seats everywhere. But I just wonder, Clint, if we're going to get to a point where, like, I, I think if things continue to trend upward, you know, maybe we start to see tests testing results or positives go down. We need to get to a point where we maybe allow anywhere from, I'd say at least just a thousand fans, maybe 2000 fans. You could spread them out. There's two ballparks that are doing it right now that I know of. One is right here in, in Sugarland, just outside of Houston, where <clears throat> uh, the Sugarland Scooters are an independent league ball. They, uh, what they've decided to do is take a bunch of former college players and uh, independent league players and put them into a four-team league. Roger Clemens got got involved. He's managing one of the teams, and they're playing like two, three games a day, and they're letting fans in the stands. Now they're social distancing. You got to wear your mask when you walk into the ballpark. Once you sit down, you can take the, the mask off. But they're not putting anybody, you know, in the same rows. They're spacing them out, you know, six, seven seats apart. And then they're also doing it in Round Rock uh, outside Austin. They're doing the same thing with a collegiate uh, type league with players from Baylor and TCU. So, man, it, it's, if those ballparks can do it, I'd like you to say MLB can do it. And for anybody who wants to say, oh, well, you know, maybe they're having positives there. Well, no, I would think the news stations would be jumping at the chance to find somebody that went to one of those games and got sick from going to the game. So, yeah. so far, so good. They've been doing it for over a month, and there's no, no positives yet. So I, I hold out hope that as a positive that maybe eventually sometime in the next month to two months, we can start having some fans in the seats. Well, I mean, Chris, I mean, this is actually happening over here, too. I mean, we got the Acadiana Cane Cutters, part of that Texas Collegiate League you were just talking about. They've been allowing fans, us at 103.7 the game, we all went to the first game, and it was very, I mean, they had every other row was blocked off, and you probably had more fans at Fabacher Field than you probably ever had in any other Cane Cutters game. That's not throwing shade. It just feels like almost factual. Everybody wanted to see sports, and they were able to see sports live, and I don't know if people did wind up testing positive, but I know I wore my mask. Everybody else at the station turned out fine. I, I, I think you can have it, but I have to agree with you. It's like if you have it, like up to 3,000 people right here, like let's say next month, they say, hey, we're going to allow 3,000 fans. That'd be, that'd be great. Yeah, I, I just think you need to, there's, there's got to be a point where you allow people to make the decision for themselves. It feels like a time 
you know, I don't want to get political, but it feels like government sometimes feel like feels like they need to tell you, no, we know what's best for you. You're too dumb to make decisions for yourself. I just feel like it, it let people make the decision. I, I several people asked me this week, if LSU football opens it up to, to fans, would you go to a game? I said, absolutely. They said, really? You go sit in a, in a, in a packed stadium? I said, hold on, cut the brakes. It's not going to be a packed stadium. It's obviously going to be much less people. It's obviously going to be you have to wear a mask and socially distance. So with knowing all that, that makes my decision for me. But, yes, I would take that risk. And, honestly, if we're being real out there, there are probably some Cajun fans and some LSU Tiger fans that are elderly that would say, I know the risk. I still want to go. I'd rather go see a football game of my favorite team, and if I get sick, so be it. They're willing to take that risk because they love their games that much. And it sounds crazy to people outside of the South, but that's how we think. Chris, thank you so much, for man, for coming on. We'll talk to you down the road. Enjoy the game tonight. Thanks, good. All right, that was Chris Gordy. You can follow him on Twitter, at Chris Gordy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's kind of de- de- let's kind of veer off the beaten path for a minute because I want to kind of break some news. This isn't part of the program. This stuff just came out during the interview. And I, I, I've got to be the person to break up the sad displeasure of the announcement that this just came out about 10 minutes ago. The Louisiana Raging Cajuns football assistant coach, DJ Looney, passed away this morning following a heart attack during a team workout at Cajun Field. Looney was entering his third season on staff with the Raging Cajuns, working specifically with the offensive line. Looney was 31. It's a, it's a sad day for the Louisiana Raging Cajuns, losing a great man well before his time. You know, I I don't even know what to say. Never, I've never met him before, but I can about imagine he had a huge impact on each and every one of those players that he coached. And it's it's a tough break for the Cajuns who just can't seem to catch one over the last couple of years. Hopefully, you know, everybody else, I, hopefully this thing can, I, I don't even know what to say. So I'm just going to go ahead and take a quick timeout. I'm not going to play any music. Just going to take a quick timeout. We'll kind of pick up the pieces and we'll wrap up the show with one final take. And wrap up the program next. You're listening to Under the Dome with CD on 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. Just before we close up shop here on 1037 The Game, the famous CD is looking to fire off one more take before dropping the mic. Is it going to be a hot one? Or is it going to be one he'd like to take back six months down the road? Let's listen in and find out. You know, usually I go one last take and actually go more towards the sports aspect, but obviously this isn't the time for that. But I wanted to get something off before we wrap up the show. More about how happy I am, how happy I am to be here. Because back when this whole COVID-19 stuff started, I really had to develop a sense of gratitude. A lot of it had to do with a lot of stuff that was going on with my family at the time, and it was a lot. And then I started to see a lot of things change in the world. A lot of people were losing their jobs, left and right, sideways. People a lot better than me, I think, more talented than me, losing their jobs in this industry. It sucked to see a lot of the great talents out there lose their gigs for one reason or another. And it made me feel grateful every day that I'm here. Because it's just, this is an amazing station to begin with. I see stuff like with iHeartMedia, Shutting down Sports 1280 New Orleans, where Chris Gordy used to have a show in New Orleans in the middle of the day. That's That station's since been shut down. And now, 
it's it's crazy because in, in a world where things are changing, things are being downsized and whatnot, here at Acadiana Sports Station, things aren't being shut down. Things aren't being downsized. In fact, I feel like to a certain extent we're expanding. We're growing. And that is an amazing feeling. And I'm more than proud to be here, more than proud to be part of a phenomenal Saturday morning sports talk lineup. First Cup, the professor, Don Trahan. We got our guy, Louis Prejean, unprompted. Plenty of Pels talk right there. I might not necessarily talk as much about them, some more than down with that. But I appreciate everybody listening in. We're going to have fun on this show. We're going to have a lot of great sports talk, and hopefully we have a lot of great moments to talk about different things. And again, rest in peace to Coach Looney, and my thoughts and prayers are with Looney, his family, the players, Billy Napier, the rest of the coaching staff. My thoughts and prayers are with them with the passing of Louisiana football assistant coach DJ Looney. But that's about all I got for the show today. I'm going to get out of here. Have a great rest of your weekend. I'll be back with you next Saturday. 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. is the brand new time. And I've got a really fun edition of Under the Dome coming up next week. Wake up! The show's over! Oh yeah! Kick it!